Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Hey guys, I also wanted to tell you about Zenledger, the best tax software for cryptocurrency investors and accountants. It's fast and easy to use, and you can get all of your crypto transactions in one place so you can trade smarter and optimize your taxes. Zenledger offers 24-7 customer support by phone, email, or chat to help you get your taxes done stress-free, and it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee because they know you'll love it. Zenledger is giving an exclusive 15% discount to our listeners when you use coupon code CHAIN15. Go to zenledger.io, linked in the show notes below, to get started and get your taxes done fast. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have on Arthur Brightman, who's the founder of Tezos. Arthur, how's it going? Uh, Good. How are you? Good. I just got done playing Risk with my roommates. So, you know, alliances were formed and some people aren't friends anymore, but happy other than that. How long, it did, happens. How long did that take? Uh, longer than I thought. It was uh, like a two, two and a half hour game, surprisingly. Oh, I, I think I always confuse Risk and Diplomacy and I think they're kind of similar uh, in style, but uh, I can never tell them apart. Yeah, me either. It's uh, This was one of the older versions of Risk or newer versions. I forgot which one, but always fun. But um, it's great to have you on. Uh, for those who don't know you, it would be great if you could give your you know, 30-second elevator pitch. I, it's probably redundant at this point. Uh, well, you know, I would say the reason I'm on uh, today is co-founding uh, Tezos, which is a, uh, like it's a software project. It's a blockchain. It's a cryptocurrency. It's all three. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I, uh, prior to, uh, prior to being involved in that, uh, I worked in, uh, robotics. I worked at Waymo for a while. I worked in, uh, finance and high frequency trading. So I have a bit of an eclectic background before, uh, uh, before getting into this space. That's incredible. I, I have so many questions for you. I don't know where to start. Um, we, we got a lot on Twitter. I can't name everyone by name, but one of the good questions we got was, you know, what has changed most in your thinking since the beginning of Tezos? that it came as a surprise or, you know, got you excited? I guess what's changed the most? Interesting. So there's one thing that I thought was very important at the beginning of Tezos, which I think is still important, but like a a lot less so. Uh, I used to think that you really needed to have most of your features directly embedded in the protocol because if you were just building them on top without them having without them being canonical then somehow uh, it would be much harder for them to take off because there wouldn't be a clear canonical example so to make this concrete let's say you're building uh, something like a domain name system uh, do you need to build it directly in your protocol or do you need to build it on top as a smart contract let's say you're being a stable coin does it need to be baked in the protocol or does it need to be built in a smart contract and so on and so forth and uh, yeah I, w- I was under the impression that it would be hard for these to um, to take off if if they weren't directly a part of the protocol if they were just you know some entry in some database in some corner of the ledger and I think empirically that has been uh, refuted I think there's still benefits in having them be 
uh, at the protocol level in terms of uh, efficiency, in terms of canonicity, but it's not as important as I once thought it was. So uh, I guess that would be one um, one important point. So would that be like the kind of the Ethereum route today where everything is not really built on the protocol layer, but built on top? Yeah, so very much so in the idea of, you know, I think that Ethereum said that Ethereum has no feature. And uh, like I said, I, I wouldn't say I am 100% all the way into so saying no features, uh, not at all. But, you know, maybe if I started at maybe like 90, 80%, uh, everything needs to be baked into the protocol directly as opposed to build on the application, as opposed to be being built uh, directly as a smart contract, I would say maybe like now I would be like a 40% or a 50%. What key feature do you think out of the ones you list, like what did you think about that Tezos should have at the base layer that you now think shouldn't be like, is it that stable coin idea? Like what exactly are you thinking through there? Uh, prediction markets, for example, would be one. Uh, prediction markets, uh, stable coins. Stable coins, I'm actually like more on the fence. I think there's there's benefits in having them directly at the protocol level. But prediction markets and uh, domain name systems, for example. Would that line of thinking play in a Bitcoin a bit? I mean, because Bitcoin, you know, doesn't have anything really built at the protocol layer other than being money, and people are hoping to build on top. But it's obviously very hard to build on top. I guess. How do you think through? less features on the protocol layer as it relates to Bitcoin? Well, you know, Bitcoin doesn't have uh, either. It doesn't have a protocol that you can easily amend to introduce new features and it doesn't ha- and, and, it, and it's hard to extend and build on top of it. So you can't really do easers. Uh, there are some things you can do. Uh, you know, I would say Bitcoin is, uh, it's expressive enough that you can get something like Lightning, but that is, that is pretty much pushing it. It's like, I would say something like Lightning is, is pushing Bitcoin to, uh, to uh, to its limit in terms of what it can do uh, in level two, and in, in in fact, you know that's that's also why uh, you had to have like a soft fork to uh, to have a good support of Lightning. It's really really pushing it to its limits. I think uh, there's a lot to gain by being more uh, extendable. So this is a good leeway into you know a lot of people debate the Fat Protocol thesis. If things should be built on top, where does value accrue? I, I think a lot of this has to go back into arguments about token econ and value accrual. Where do you think you stand on that argument on the FAT protocol thesis as it relates to you know Bitcoin, ETH, Tezos? Do things have to be built on top? You know, how, how exactly do you think through that? Yeah, it's good. So there's there's an ambiguity about the term uh, FAT protocol. I think it designates two things. One thing, and when it, when generally I talk about FAT protocol, I I really talk about this idea of saying like, hey, instead of having like many many uh, layers, you know, in an application layer that's really built on top of the protocol, you can build this directly inside the protocol. So the protocol in in, in some sense is FAT. So that's what we were just talking about. But also, I think that the FAT protocol refers to um, these VC teasers that value capture happen at the protocol level, uh, as opposed to uh, within companies which are built, uh, which are building on top of the uh, of cryptocurrencies. And you know, in in, in the first instance, uh, you're talking about something that's about technical design. You know, how do you design your protocol? Where do you design features and so on and so forth? And in the second one. It's more of a uh, VC thesis about uh, what's uh, you know what what uh, what value capture looks like. Realistically, if uh, if we're looking at the companies which have been built, I think uh, the only successful companies really that we've seen by and large have been uh, exchanges, chain analytics company, and then a few exceptions like maybe some remittance companies. There's always you know a few uh, there's always a few gems, but if you look broadly speaking, uh, it's clear that protocols have captured more values than. Uh, uh, than companies so far, so you know, just from like a pure empirical perspective, I think it's been uh, it's been somewhat validated. Do you think that 
it's been validated and it will extend into the future. Like I'm just trying to think through like everything is built on Ethereum today or, or a lot of is in the space, a lot of experiments. So people are kind of assuming that that's going to continue and that can't change at all. But to the flip side, there's other protocols, you know, specifically like Tezos that have things that ETH wants that could enable developers to build different things, formally verified things. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess, how do you think through competition there between the two? Well, I'm just, this opens a new thought that, that I don't, that I'd like to add, which is that, again, in, in this FAT protocol thing, part of this thinking as well, uh, for some people were thinking, oh, you know, uh, in these applications, uh, there will be companies, but the value will be captured by the protocol they create. So you'll have company creating protocols and then building around this protocol, and the protocol will, will capture the value. And that part of the thesis I really don't buy. So, you know, and, and, and this is what gave you a, a wave of, uh, of app coins. Uh, so companies saying, for example, we're going to be, you know, the new YouTube or, you know, decentralized Twitter or what have you, and then we'll have a token and hoping that, you know, they're going to build some value around this token and then, you know, offers, offer services around it. Um, I don't really buy the app coin thesis because uh, a lot of the time, especially if you're building open source and if you're building a, uh, a decentralized ecosystem, having a token is basically like having a, a toll booth in an open field. And so that doesn't really work. I, I think that, you know, again, all of these things, you know, can be copied, they can be forked. And so the, the only way that you can have uh, something that functions is, is essentially if it functions as money, if you have something as strong as, uh, as a network effect of, uh, of, you know, store value and moneyness. Uh, that's, I think if you're not shooting for that, if it's just like, oh, this will be the token associated with this ecosystem, I don't think that works. So for a lot of layer ones that have projects built on top, people would probably push back and say, you know, hey, Arthur, if Maker and Synthetics and all these things are built on a protocol, they'll all have to pay fees to the layer one. And then those fees will accrue to miners and that will drive the value of the native token. How do you think through that on the value curl basis? Because I know you don't agree with the AppCoin thesis, or do you just not need that at all anyway? No, I mean, it's possible that, uh, first of all, I, I think the argument for fees is very weak in proof of work. It's much stronger in proof of stake. And the difference primarily is that, okay, so let's say you have someone who really wants to use your proof of work protocol, like Ethereum. And so they have to pay a lot of fees. And so they're going to have to uh, to buy the token in order to pay the fees. Um, because by default the fees are paid in this token, so they're going to have to be, they're going to have to buy this token, and then they're going to spend it when they sell the fees. And so, in the interim period where they buy it and they spend it, uh, they're going to be holding it, which you know, which can raise the value of Ethereum, for example, if they're if they're doing this on Ethereum. But it's a short period of time. It's based essentially on transaction cost. Really, the idea is that you have some people who say, well, I might need to do some transaction. And so therefore, since I might need to do some transaction, I'm going to keep a small balance in Ether, right? Because I may need to be spending it as transaction. But that, that, that amount that you that, that you leave is very small. And really, the amount that, that matters here is not how much you're spending and transaction fees, it's how much uncertainty you're uh, you're willing to you, 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 you're looking to spend. So, if you think of money, the reason people have money is because they don't know what they might spend money. Uh, they, they might spend uh, things on in the future. If I know for sure in the future I'm going to you know, want 
you know, a brick, I buy the brick now, or I enter into a contract to get the brick. If I don't know what I'm going to want, I keep some money. And so if I, if I don't know what transaction I may spend on the Ethereum network, I don't want to have to acquire my ETH at the last time, I keep some ETH on hand and then I can spend any transaction. But then, you know, that gets into the hand of the miner, miner sells it to something else. So it's, 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 fairly, uh, it's a fairly weak link. If you have do if you're doing uh, and also I don't even have to do this like in, in in principle I can pay a miner in any currency I don't have to pay it in ETH it's just more convenient because it's part of the protocol but really out of band you could you could you could pay the miner in uh, in what have you and in fact I've seen proposals within Ethereum to do in band payments uh, directly in uh, in, in uh, ERC twenty tokens like do uh, Dai payments in band and so on and so forth I don't think that's very um, so I, I don't think you you. That captures value, like they say, in a, in, a, uh, in a thesis. If you're doing proof of stake, it's very different because in proof of stake, owning tokens gives you the right to create blocks, and having the right to create blocks gives you the right to receive fees. And so that I think makes it a, uh, makes it a lot more interesting because all of a sudden now, when fees are being spent on the network, regardless of the currency in which they're being spent, regardless if they're spent in a cryptocurrency, in some other token, if they're paid by like wire payments through a bank and so on and so forth. Now it's interesting because uh, as a participant in the system, you have the right to create blocks. And so by creating this block and by taking uh, part in the network, you get to uh, to participate in that. Got it. So just so I'm understanding correctly, and I'm, I don't want to botch this because there's a lot to unpack there and it's super interesting. What you're saying is that the thesis on fees of applications built on top doesn't hold up in proof of work, but it holds up in proof of stake because users actually have a use case for the native asset? It's not that they have a use case for the native asset. It's that the native asset... So basically, if, if in proof of work, when people spend a lot of transaction fees, it goes into the pocket of miners. And so miners increase the hash rate. And so when you have a lot of fees being spent on a proof-of-work network, the first order effect is that you're going to raise hash rate. Now, it could be that because of that, you might say like, ha, you know, because hash rate is now higher, I can reduce issuance. So it, it, it's not that there's no connection, but you would have to have the ability to, to tune issuance based on how much miners are getting from fees, which I don't think anyone is, uh, is actually doing right now. Got it. Okay. On the other hand, you have this uh, tuning happen automatically when you're doing proof-of-stake because in proof of stake you're not sponsor you know you're not subsidizing hash rate by having more transaction essentially when you're doing when you're paying transaction fees in uh, in, a, in 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 proof of stake it's almost equivalent as if it were burned as opposed to going on to support hash rate got it okay that makes a lot more sense but, but a transaction fee you can you can look at a transaction fee as being paid to a random staker and so that's uh, that's that's equivalent to the transaction fee being burned and but that worked. No, the, the nice thing is that it works regardless of how it's being paid. Arthur, that's super interesting. And my other question on this thread, not to switch gears a little bit, was how you think about interoperability in the space. So everybody's talking about bridges between Bitcoin, ETH, Tezos. Tezos just launched some form of Bitcoin on its network, and there's a lot of projects focused on this. And then there's a lot of discussion on where value accrues and, and things like that. How do you think about interoperability at a high level? People made a huge deal of interoperability in 2018 and of 2017. I've always been a bit of a skeptic in terms of the value of uh, interop. I remain a bit of a skeptic. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to, uh, to necessarily have. Although I do think so. I do think it's a benefit to have other tokens tokenized on your platform. I think it's um, 
I think it's oftentimes not good to be tokenized uh, on someone else's platform. So the reason for that is uh, if you, the minute you start treating these cryptocurrencies as a mere, as you know, as mere representation of uh, of value, and you divorce them from their platform, uh, and you move them onto a platform which has its own native store of value, it's kind of, um, I think, it's kind of a uh, a slippery slope. You know, I see some people saying like, "Oh, um, you know, we'll see uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, for example, and uh, and you know, the entire Bitcoin will move to Ethereum, and you know, the, the Bitcoin shell itself will be abandoned, and that's just like how what it will be." And I don't believe this for a second because if this were to happen, progressively you'd see Bitcoin lose, lose its value. Like it has to be on its own native chain. You have to be, you know, I would say that your token has to be a sovereign where it lives, uh, and, and then it's on its own chain. Otherwise, um, you can't. You, you you can't maintain. I would say the mystique that lets you be a uh, uh, a cryptocurrency, like a, a a real cryptocurrency that 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 people value. That I don't think that happens if you're just you know some tokenized asset from some other chain. Arthur, that's interesting. So I mean, there's just so many projects in the space though that are focused on this, right? Like Cosmos and Polkadot, and a lot of what they sell is the ability to you know build wildly new applications because you can connect chains with different you know, features and, and technical uh, differences. I never really necessarily bought that, but do you think that that's like a possibility or do you not buy it? No, I think it's possible. Uh, it's not what I, you know, spend, uh, want to spend most of my, most of my singing off. If someone builds this for Tezos, I think that's great. But personally, it's, I, I, I wouldn't like, I, I wouldn't focus my own effort on, on something like this uh, personally, because I don't, I don't quite see it. So the way I'm thinking of something like Cosmos is that it may feel an interesting niche. So you had a lot of applications which have been built on Ethereum, which don't really need to be on a large uh, censorship-resistant public blockchain. And really, the reason they're there is because they want to have a token and they want to be somewhat decentralized, but decentralization and censorship-resistance is not super important to them. And for a lot of these people, if you tell them like, hey, you know what, you can have your own chain, not have to worry about gas, not have to worry about platform risk, not have to worry about any of that. Just write your own chain uh, and find like four or five people to run it and you'll be fine. That is very, very compelling. And then you tell them on top of that, and on top of that, you'll have wallets that will work for it. And, um, you know, if, if, if people want to exchange your assets with other assets, you know they can move your asset to other chain. I think that like I I, I think that feels like that feels a very important niche for a lot of application, uh, and so you might see a lot of that. And if the only state you can port between chain is balances, I think that's ninety nine percent of the state that people want to uh, want to move. It's it's not very complex states that people want to move between chains. So that solves the problem for a lot of projects. But the question I would have is ultimately. I'm not sure that these projects are going to be valuable uh, in the long run uh, because for some for some of them you have a bit of a um, decentralization theater, and so I, I don't you know if if you're fine with just being on a chain with four or five validators that you know you've, you've built, then maybe you're fine being on uh, Amazon AWS, and that's fine for a lot of projects. If you're not, then maybe you do need to be on a uh, large censorship resistance public blockchain and um oh and and the the other thing is that 
So let's say you build this thing, then you build a good technology, uh, but you haven't really built something that can has have a shot at, uh, at at being a global form of uh, of money. And again, I think it's hard to uh, it's hard to survive if you're not shooting for moneyness. You bring up a lot of good points there. I don't know which to go into first, so I'll I'll tackle the decentralization question. You mentioned decentralization theater. A lot of projects don't actually need like to be built on Ethereum. They don't need that redundancy or that decentral level of decentralization. Do you think that the majority of these projects? I mean, obviously, probably the majority will fail, but how exactly do you figure out which ones need this level of decentralization? Like, don't you need to have this experimentation phase to figure that out? I don't know. So, I, you know, I, if, if you're censorship resistant, uh, so first of all, the decentralization is about censorship resistance, right? Uh, decentralization for decentralization's sake is not that, uh, that interesting. You are decentralized because it makes it easy. It makes you more resilient. It makes you unstoppable. It makes you hard to censor. So the question is, who's trying to censor you? And if you can't, if you don't have a good answer to that question, that's 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 uh, suspicious. And you know, the answer to that question doesn't have to be like, oh, the government is going to crack down on this. There's, there's there's a lot of situations where you might be the one trying to censor yourself. For example, if you don't, you know, if you have a company product and you want to convince your customer that your company is not going to control the ecosystem that you're creating, uh, so that they should feel free to build content, because we we'll have a lot of uh, very successful media companies where the content has been created by users. So if you want to convince your users that you're not going to screw with them, um, that you will not censor them, then you do need censorship resistance from yourself. So th- there are instances where um, you can where you can have uh, subtle answers to that uh, to that question. But I, I do see a lot of cases where you don't really have good answers. And I've heard a counter argument, which is to say like, well, you know, you don't, maybe you don't need to be on a public blockchain, but it's just convenience. You know, the blockchain is there. Uh, it works. You have a lot of, uh, you have an ecosystem. You have a lot of uh, actors who are already in this chain talking to each other. And so, you know, in the same way that the internet was built so that it would withstand, you know, nuclear war, uh, it doesn't mean that uh, you should only create websites if you need a platform for your website that can withstand nuclear war. You build your website on the internet because it's there and it's convenient and it works. And maybe maybe you can say the same thing about blockchains. Uh, the difficulty here is that there is still a lot of, uh, it, you know, it's still perilous to deploy, to deploy on blockchain. It's still expensive. It's still slow. And so you really need to have a very compelling thesis to build on a blockchain today, as opposed to uh, building a centralized system. I I feel like your point on, or your question to ask every project who's trying to censor you, if every project had to ask that, it would have cleaned up a lot of projects. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a tough one for teams to answer. And so, I mean, when you're thinking about decentralization, though, like, how do you think, though, 50 or 100 years in the future? Like, how do we know who's trying to censor us? Like, people that are trying to censor us now might, or might not censor us now, may want to in the future, right? Like, we're trying to build these things for the long term. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's true. Uh, you don't you don't necessarily know in advance um, when you go, where you're going to be censored. But everything is cost-benefit analysis. If you're paying like this huge cost to be in a blockchain, if you're like paying large transaction fees, and you have to have you know deploy your code once and not be able to easily update it, and have all this platform risk and have all of these like weird UX and so on and so forth, like there's a cost to deploying something on a blockchain, and so. You know, sure, maybe someone's going to want to censor you in the future, but you have to like weigh the probability that's going to happen, uh, and the probability that you're going and, and that your defense against this will be actually strong enough versus 
the you know the very very real cost you're going to face in doing this. And in theory, you know, so in theory, uh, you know, maybe you know we'll see like sharded blockchains which will have all discharge, or you'll have you know something like Polkadot where you run your own parachain chain and it's all. You know, it, it, it's all shared security, and so it doesn't matter. You don't pay any cost. You run your application just uh, on your own. But we haven't seen any of this uh, live yet, and so I will. Uh, I, I would reserve some judgment on this. Yeah, I was going to ask you what you think makes for a good blockchain-based app versus a bad one, and it sounds like one of your first filters is, you know, does this actually need to be decentralized? Yeah, and I would say like does it need to be uh, censorship resistance? I, I would say decentralization is uh, is a means to an end. Like if we could if we could snap our finger and the blockchain was central, you know, we, the blockchain was uh, safe uh, and uh, didn't have any uh, rent uh, or uh, like rent extraction and uh, wasn't uh, censorable, then you wouldn't care about decentralization. You care about decentralization insofar as it gives you those properties. So, I mean, I guess when I'm thinking about this, like you, people might bring up examples of blockchains that aren't as decentralized, but say offer higher throughput. And one thing might be, you know, hey, why don't you just build on EOS, like higher throughput, and it's more, you know, central, more centralized, but who cares, right? But I feel like people don't want to innovate on centralized chains, even though their app doesn't need to be decentralized, because they lose the ethos, they lose this idea of protection. I just feel like they lose the magic, even though, to your point, they might not need that magic. So I guess, how do you think through that? Because like innovation is happening on the decentralized chains, even though it really doesn't have to. I know. I, I think you nail it. I think a lot of it is the magic. I think a lot of it is the ideology. A lot of these I think a lot of these applications are being built by people who are ideological, who are passionate about decentralized platforms and censorship resistant platform. And you know, maybe even if the app that they're building doesn't need as much censorship resistance as uh, being a global form of money, for example, they will. They they, they still see the appeal of the platform. And, and and that's fine. That's 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 a fine reason to to to, uh, to build on it. No, that that's fair enough. And so, talking about decentralization, proof of stake is obviously a hot topic. ETH two point has goals. You guys have been proof of stake from the start, which is incredible. Uh, Decred's out there. There's a lot of new layer ones launching that are proof of stake or or moving to it. I'm wondering your view of like the current proof of stake landscape. It's a question from Maniba Blockstack actually. Because there obviously are a lot of differences here and a lot to talk about. I guess the most important things are the extremes. You know, what do you think makes or breaks a bad proof of stake network? Because there's just so many out there at this point. Yeah. So I mean, we can go through the. Uh, I, I think you know. I, I think clearly. Uh, I think clearly. Uh, I'm very happy that uh, Tezos is proof of stake and not proof of work. You know, if if given the choice between proof of work and proof of checks, I, I, I will I, I will pick uh, proof of stake, no questions. But I can also go into the weaknesses of proof of stake directly. So uh, one of the weaknesses is that you have, in some sense, a closed system. So even if you have thousands and thousands initially, uh, like so, I think uh, Tezos started with uh, thirty-two thousand accounts, which you know uh, there is no reason to create multiple accounts so we, we we could assume that it's 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 probably about this number of participants um the only way is that you can get uh that you can get tez is basically buy it from someone who owns it uh or already own it and like process some blocks uh, whereas in proof of work in theory uh you know there's this um myth uh, that you can 
you know, go into a cabin in the wood and then, uh, you know, just like uh, build a kiln, build, you know, bootstrap the entire tech stack, build an ASIC, and then start mining by yourself some uh, some, 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 some some tokens. And then you'll be able to create, you know, uh, forge uh, Bitcoins or Ethereum with, in proof of work without like anyone's permission. Um, but so that's, that's a kind of like mocking version of it. But in reality, it is true that the supply chain that can produce um, miners or, or, or that can let you participate in a proof of work system is bigger than the set of people uh, who might be uh, able to sell it to you. And so there's this like openness that you're missing. And so one of the characteristics that's very important in proof of uh, of stake is to have a very wide uh, dissemination of the uh, uh, of the cryptocurrency itself. Because if you don't, if you have some sort of uh, large concentration or only a few people, you basically just have like a very very close system. And I think that that plagued early um, early uh, early proof of stake effort, like NXT, for example, was plagued with this uh, with this idea that it was controlled by only a few people. It's hard to get there, though, right? I mean, because you want max distribution, but you also don't want your token to be worthless. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And that's the, uh, that is a challenge of launching. Because uh, if you want to launch a proof of work network, you don't need to do, uh, you know, in theory, you don't need to do anything. You just, uh, you just publish a, you just, you know, you publish a paper, you mine your first block and that's it. You know, people mine after it and you have your, uh, you have your distribution mechanism. If you need to have, like, how do you get an initial allocation for a proof of stake network? And that's a very, uh, that's a much difficult, more difficult problem than, uh, than the problem of doing uh, uh, proof of work. Do you think that, you know, in line with the distribution idea, do you think that ETH2 has a benefit because it has the distribution of ETH1 holders that could potentially move over? Or do you think that I shouldn't think of that along what you're saying as a benefit? I mean, if uh, it depends on the benefit over whom. Uh, I don't think it's a benefit over Tezos because I think Tezos has a, already a, a pretty wide uh, user base, but it's a benefit over, you know, some new protocols that hasn't launched yet, for example. Yeah, there's just, you know, I, I I mean, I write about this for Delphi. There's just so many new layer ones launching. I just have such an issue figuring out, you know, how everybody's going to be able to coexist. Like, I just don't get how a new layer one with, you know, 50 million VC money that's not even at mainnet is going to compete with incumbents that, you know, have all the mind share. How do you think through that? Like, do you agree, disagree, or, or do you leave room open for innovation there? No, I think that, uh, I mean, there's always room for innovation. It doesn't mean there's room for competition uh, because a lot of innovation can be copied. And so... I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so a lot of this, you know, a lot of the things that launched have really cool tech, have, but in, in general, they'll have, you know, one interesting aspect like, oh, you know, this is a really neat way of doing consensus or like, oh, you really opt, you know, you, you, you've really done some great engineering to optimize your throughput. You know, maybe people can think of the projects behind this, but uh, <laughs> if you are, uh, but that, that, that's not enough. Like the, the things that, you know, cannot really be replicated is uh, community, essentially. That's, you know, that's the, uh, that's the actual moat. And it's going to be very, very hard for these uh, for these projects to build. You know, you want to have a mythology. You want to have a, you want to have like community spirit engagement. And that's really, really hard to replicate. Hey guys, I also wanted to tell you about Zen Ledger, the best tax software for cryptocurrency investors and accountants. It's fast and easy to use, and you can get all of your crypto transactions in one place, so you can trade smarter and optimize your taxes. 
Zenledger offers 24-7 customer support by phone, email, or chat to help you get your taxes done stress-free, and it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee because they know you'll love it. Zenledger is giving an exclusive 15% discount to our listeners when you use coupon code CHAIN15. Go to zenledger.io, linked in the show notes below, to get started and get your taxes done fast. Why do you think that VCs in the space, and I know you're, you're not specifically VC, but I'm wondering your take, why do you think they spend so much time investing in layer ones versus potentially investing in projects built on you guys, built on ETH, built on Bitcoin? Like, why, why do you think they're you know, potentially wasting their time and their LPs money here? Well, it's it's a fat protocol thesis. Like you know, they've tried. If you look, they've tried to invest in. Uh, so VCs tried to invest in a bunch of like companies that are going to build on Bitcoin, and they didn't pan out. Like the only one that ended up panned out were like the Chainalysis and the Coinbase's, and like those are the ones which have been really profitable for uh, uh, for VCs. Uh, but they but they realized that that didn't uh, you know those, those were exceptions and not not, not the rule. And so as a uh, as, a, as an investment, uh, I would say that a lot of these companies have been uh, have been dogs for the VCs, unfortunately. And I think the problem is that I think they think of layer one as like technology plays, and they're not. Uh, they think of these as like investing in technology companies, and it is not at all what it's like. And that's I, I think that's why they're going to have a bit of a uh, of a surprise there. Yeah, and no, I, I agree with you there. And you brought up community as the most important aspect. I I couldn't agree more there. And I want to know what makes for a great community. I mean, I, th- I feel like a lot of it goes to the ethos on the community side, and then a lot of it goes to funding on the dev side. But I mean, you could really screw this up. Like EOS has $3 billion and there's nothing built on it. So how do you kind of think through you know, building a community and, and funding the developers to build on it as well? Yeah, I don't think you should. F- I don't think you should fund developments and certainly not fund applications on top of layer one. That's not going to... Uh... That, that that doesn't work because you're just going to be adversely selected. You know, if uh, if, if you go and say and if you go and say like, hey, you know, free money for anyone who builds on the platform, that 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 really doesn't work because you're going to get a lot of people who are interested in just free money uh, and not necessarily people who write good applications. So the way to do it um, is investing into developer tooling, like have really, really excellent developer tools that people want to build on your platform because it's so great and so convenient. Uh, that's infrastructure uh, providing uh, providing the roads. Uh, that's the thing that pans out. It's kind of like you know uh, building a uh, building a railroad so that you know all of a sudden it's like oh cool, cool the train gets in down now you can uh, you, you can do interesting things. I Arthur, I literally just tweeted that the other day. That foundation should build infrastructure, not apps. I couldn't agree more. It's, it is that what you guys are like? Is that what the Tezos Foundation is focused on? I mean, you guys have the or the Tezos Foundation has a significant amount of money, and yeah. they're allocating it very well. Like it's you know it's a certain amount of money. It, it's you guys aren't overspending, but are you? Is the Tezos Foundation focused on building that infrastructure out? I don't know what their plans are. Uh, they do have. Uh, I mean, I do see some stuff. Uh, Coming out, there's some. I, I know that they're like some of their grantees are building some infrastructure. Uh, I see some of that. I see uh, TQ building some infrastructure things, uh, Cryptonomic building some infrastructure things, uh, some of the Pronomatic. So you know, we, we we do see some of that, but I don't know exactly what their plans are. Yeah, I'm close with TQ Group in, in New York. They're doing some great things on you guys. I could give them a shout out. And you know, the the I guess the reason I I agree with you is that you know not the only the adverse selection thing, but if you if a foundation builds the infrastructure or the core developers build the infrastructure, then anybody can build the applications built on top. 
Yeah, yeah, that's I, that, you know that's the thing that I, I think that's the best, that's the most reasonable thing you can uh, you can do as opposed to trying to directly attract the uh, the applications. For sure, for sure. So, just switching gears a little bit because we're running through a lot. Nick Carter asked about how you think through supply of a protocol, and I guess it's a really good question that ties into the argument on you know competition to be a money store of value, have a max supply cap. How exactly do you think through these things? I know there's a lot to unpack, but feel free to, to take whichever's most interesting. Yeah, so I, I mulled this over for a while, um, knowing something was wrong, but the way people talked about supply, but not knowing exactly how to explain how we're thinking about it. And it ended up condensing into a large blog post. It's on my website, ex.rs. And there's there's two parts. Uh, the first part of that blog post is like, how do you enforce supply cap? And the other part, and, and the other part of the blog post is like, okay, but what are supply caps? How do we think about supply? And you know, I like to um, I like to walk people through some thought experiments because you'll find that people have very binary views about supply, but you can present them with scenarios where clearly they, they should say like, oh, there's no difference, and then you tweak the scenario, tweak the scenario, tweak the scenario, and, and you can convince people there's a continuum. So for example, imagine that you start with Bitcoin. Bitcoin has a cap of 21 uh, million coin. And people say like, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin is value because it's scarce because there's a maximum number of Bitcoin. And you say, okay, so imagine that you had Bitcoin, you know, tw- instead of Bitcoin being 21 million uh, coin, it's 21 million coin. And then after that, you have one Satoshi that's created every year for eternity. Like, does that change anything? And clearly, like any sane person, like looks at this and say, like, okay, no, it doesn't change anything because, like, that's such a tiny amount that, over like centuries, just one century every year is not going to change anything. Like, okay, now imagine that you say, all right, so you have uh, Bitcoin, twenty-one million coin, uh, but um, after a thousand year, after the twenty-one million coin, you're going to create a trillion coin. Does that change anything? Uh, and again, I would argue that no, it doesn't actually change. Uh, it doesn't actually change, uh, change that much because it's so far in the future. So, if you want to have an account of like how to understand supply, it needs to take into account time. If you're not taking time into account, you're not, you know, you're not thinking about this right, and it needs to um, it needs to take into account uh, the fact that. It's 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 not about like a finite amount versus an infinite amount. It's 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 about when uh, you have it. And so the reason uh, you know going back to um, the reason that people hold money, people hold money. You know the, the classical economic explanation for holding money is because it's liquidity preference. You want to have uh, some things that you can trade against other things. So let's say there's a pandemic coming. Uh, and you're like, oh my, there's a pandemic coming. I don't know what might happen. I might lose my job. I might have to pay medical bills. I, uh, you know, I might need to be able to. I might need to help some family members. I don't know what I'm going to need. So what you'll do is that you'll take some of your assets. Maybe you have investments. You know, maybe you own, you know, some stocks. Uh, maybe you have some collectibles, whatever. Uh, and you decide like, I'm going to sell those now and have some cash because. You know, these things are less liquid than cash. It takes some time to sell them. Uh, you know, I need to find a buyer and so on and so forth. So you sell those assets and you have some cash and now you sit on this cash and you wait until you have, you know, maybe you have a problem and then you can trade this cash. So you hold cash because it's the most liquid uh, means of exchange. But there's a cost to that, which is unlike 
you know, those other investments cash doesn't have yield. Uh, you know, it's not, in, you know, you're not, in, you know, you're not, you're not lending it out. You're holding it. Uh, you're not investing it into a risky venture. So, you know, there's a cost to holding cash, but there's also, it has to have value. Otherwise you wouldn't do it. And the value is what is called a convenience yield. So the convenience yield is like the utility you derive from holding cash as opposed to something else. It's not just cash. I think it works for other store of values, right? So if you're holding gold, for example, there is utility in holding physical gold, which is that, hey, you know, if things really get uh, somehow really bad or if I need some cash, gold is fairly liquid. I could trade it for something else, even in the midst of a financial crisis, it might retain its value and so on and so forth. So there's a value for holding physical gold. I would say the same thing for Bitcoin. And in fact, you can see it if you look at, uh, if you look at Bitcoin future and Bitcoin spot, you will see that the market tells you that people prefer holding Bitcoin to holding a Bitcoin future. You look at the difference between the two, it gives you a rate, and that rate is the convenience yield, is you know the value it has to actually own the stuff as opposed to owning a promise on the stuff. Okay, so we have a convenience yield. And now the convenience yield basically unlocks the puzzle for supply. You shouldn't be looking at... Uh, you shouldn't be summing, doing the arithmetic sum of the future supply. You should discount it by the convenience yield. You know, that, 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 that's what it's about. So it doesn't matter if, you know, a, a trillion year from now, more coins might be created, for example, because they're not here right now. And so you benefit right now from holding this asset because right now it is scarce. It doesn't have, it has a finite supply at this point in time. So obviously, if you have hyperinflation, Right? If you have a ton of inflation happening in a short period of time, then that's really bad because you know you may have some convenience yield in the sense that the hyperinflating money is still the, the one that's accepted at the store, but you have a lot of cost because you have to pay inflation. And so you know, a hyperinflation happens when inflation becomes much higher than the convenience yield. And if inflation is higher than your convenience yield, then basically you don't want to hold cash anymore. You're just going to get rid of your cash, which is going to drive down the value of the cash, which is going to drive value, uh, drive up the inflation, which is going to um, drive down your convenience yield. So you have this spiral of uh, hyperinflation. But if you're not in this, if you're not in this regime, inflation sucks, but it doesn't make your, it doesn't make the money worthless either. It makes the money worse less, it doesn't make it worth zero. So, you know, you know that there's an infinite supply for uh, US dollars or euros or what, or, or, or yen or what have you, and you know that it's centrally controlled and you own all of this, but at the end of the day, a lot of, I'm sure, uh, a lot of listeners have fiat currency in their wallets in some form, and the reason for it, why is convenience. So when you, when you look at supply, you have to adjust for convenience, that's one thing. And the other thing you need to adjust for is for proof-of-stake uh, currencies, you need to be adjusting for uh, proof of stake rewards because the proof of stake rewards, you know, so like, oh, you know, you you stake some coins, you create a block, you earn a reward. It's it's purely inflationary reward, and so it, it's funny because people look at it two different ways. Uh, some people will say like, oh, well, proof of stake has all this inflation; they have this permanent inflation. It's really bad. It's really inflationary, and then other people will say. Um, Oh, proof of stake is so great! Look, you know, you you get you get more tokens just by staking. It's like this free income stream. That's 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 magic, and and both are wrong because the the reason it's not the same thing as inflation is because you're getting the staking reward, and the reason the staking reward is not like some free magic income stream is precisely because it comes from inflation. It's a neutral mechanism. It's a mechanism to redistribute 
uh, ledger balances from people who are not actively helping in the security of the network to people who are actively helping in the security of the network. That's what it does. And the fact that it's implemented as a reward, as opposed to being implemented as a burn, is an implementation detail. You could have proof of stake working in the same way, where no one earns a reward, but people who don't validate blocks end up losing cryptocurrency. So if you if you build it that way, uh, I think for some people it might be psychologically unpleasant, but if you build it that way, you get something that, at least on the first order, from economic principle, is equivalent to the second one, but which would have a, uh, uh, a finite supply. And so the the, the question is like what what you dictate uh, design, and I think you ultimately you want your design to be dictated by what makes the most sense in terms of implementation. But it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting consideration to see what are the uh, psychological effects or even sometimes you know uh, tax consideration in, uh, in in how these things are uh, are built. Arthur, it's a fascinating thought experiment. I, I, I mean, it's really cool to think about. Like, would I care if Bitcoin had one Satoshi a year or you know a million in a hundred years? I, I'm not sure. I, I, but to your point, I doubt it. But I guess the question for you is, what are the implications of this? Like, you know, and are people smart enough to understand this? Because, like, let's say that supply cap, a supply cap doesn't matter. Like, are the masses going to understand that? And if so, does it really matter then? Because supply cap doesn't matter to any protocol. Like, if it doesn't matter to Bitcoin, it doesn't matter to Tezos. Why don't people just stick with Bitcoin? Right. So I, I think everyone can understand. Well, I think most people can understand. The, the the problem, uh, as as often, is not whether or not people can understand it; is whether they have the time. Uh, most people have busy lives, and uh, they don't want to get into the details. And so, if you tell them it has a supply cap, they understand that. Immediately, it's easy to draw the implications. If you start telling them about, hey, here's where you hold money, and here's convenience yield, and so on and so forth, uh, then it's uh, it, then then it's uh, then they're like, well, you know what, I have I, I have shit to do. So sorry, <laughs> this sounds especially <laughs> interesting, but I'm I'll not see really, you later. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but the counter to so that that's that's a strong argument for supply gaps. But the counter to that is that. A lot of a lot of people, by you know, by the time they adopt something like this, they don't adopt it because they're convinced by by any type of arguments. They adopt it because, hey, that's what the merchants are taking, and because it just like solves a problem for them. They will see that, hey, if I buy something online with this, it's uh, it's cheaper, or hey, this has been a uh, uh, a pretty good store of value in case of trouble, and so you know that's I think. Ultimately, people are, are are convinced by a by track record and uh, an empirical uh, evidence as opposed to uh, analytical arguments. It's and I think that that's, other, that's what will matter. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And the other part of this, though, is it comes down like in your post to security, right? So I think, and I didn't have time to read your your article yet, but I'm parsing through it. Basically, Bitcoin's obviously going to have a question of if transaction fees could sustain the network after block rewards end. To your yeah. point, if supply cap doesn't matter, you could have issuance forever as long as it's okay. And you know, similar to Tezos, so you should switch. But it's kind of a bit circular because this is like a hundred years out, and you know, who cares, right? So, I guess my question for you is: while I agree with you, and I think you're right, will you know, it's tough to move from Bitcoin to Tezos because it is so far out. It is an extreme event. Yeah, but like I don't think I don't think that would be the main uh, the main reason someone might uh, might want to use Tezos or use or 
or use uh, or use Bitcoin. I think it's just like one of the aspect of the uh, one of the aspect of the design. Uh, there's many things. The fact that you have a smart contract language that can support a lot more uh, extensions, uh, like that you can build more applications on top of it, that you can progressively make it faster, that you can add uh, privacy preserving transactions. The fact that you can have all of this. Uh, um, extendability uh, and improvement in the protocol is, I think, what's interesting. And you now, know, having a having a uh, a, a good uh, a good monetary policy, I think, is part of that. But yeah, I, I don't think anyone is going to. I don't think many people are going to switch from Bitcoin because they're going to say like, "Oh my God, you know, Bitcoin is facing this big problem." In I don't I don't think it's in hundred years. Like Bitcoin is facing this big problem in twenty years. Whatever shall we do? Uh, yeah, it won't it, it won't come down to that, but it's a it's, it's also a long haul. Um, it's also a, it's 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 a it, it's a marathon. Like no, right I, now, I, the the adoption of uh, of any cryptocurrency has been extremely low, including yeah, the, no, it is low, and and not to harp on this question, but it's it's an interesting one. You let's argue that supply cap doesn't matter, but let's say that Bitcoin's transaction fees can support the network in the future. You know, even though you might be right with your argument, does it matter if the network is still secure? Is that the right question here? I'm I'm just trying to think through it. Well, I mean, there's two reasons why transaction fees are a problem in the future. Even if uh, the amount of transaction fees is sufficient, there there are some problem in the uh, in how you create blocks. There's a good um, there's a good paper by uh, Arvind Narayan on uh, on uh, on the topic. So it, it's not even like if people are paying enough fees. It's it's also the way fees are being paid, which is. Uh, which, which basically creates some incentive to, uh, you know, if all you're getting is a fees, sometimes you're better off just trying to steal the transaction from the block beneath you than trying to extend the chain. So that's part of the, uh, that's part of the issue. But again, you know, even if, you know, you, in theory, you could adopt this, you could adopt the YOLO strategy and say like, you know what, this has a supply cap. It will be reached in 50 years. So there, you know, check the box, supply cap. I don't think it's, um, I, I, I think it's better to have a more, uh, uh, intellectually honest position, uh, but you know, if it, 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 it's possible to just say, like, sure, you know, what's supply cap? It's an, it's a self-amendable protocol. We can, we can you can cross that bridge when you get there. Uh, but I also don't have a lot of evidence that somehow this is like blocking people. I don't I don't think there are a lot of people out there who might be using Bitcoin and not another cryptocurrency because the first one has like a certain uh, is based on the supply cap and the other one is not. I think there's some people who say that, but I think it's mostly uh, um, rationalization. Now, for sure, and a lot of what you're discussing would involve, you know, the discussion of changes to a protocol, right? Governance, on-chain, off-chain, and a lot of that also plays into a protocol social contract. You know, Gregory Rocker wrote a great post on your guys's. Uh, a social contract has Sue's written about Bitcoin social contract. And basically yeah. it, it's, you know, it's a tough conversation, but basically social contract is basically what makes up a protocol for Bitcoin. It's censorship resistance, uh, inflation resistance, take your pick, right? How do you think through governance on Tezos or other protocols, but while also trying to maintain the social contract of the protocol? Yeah. So the idea is that uh, Tezos has more of a meta social contract. The, the metasocial contract of Tezos is that the, the changes to the protocol are going to be the outcome of a governance process. That's the, uh, that essentially, that, that, that's essentially the, the social contract. So you don't have to have, 
So you, you, you're not relying on like a specific a specific goal or or rule sets. You're saying, hey, we assume that the initial governance system is is good enough that is going to drive 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 the product in the right direction. It's it you know it's kind of like um, if you're if you're walking down a gradient on, on some like surface you want to be in the right basin of attraction so that you're not going to be like stuck on the wrong path and so as long as your initial governance system is reasonable enough then you're going to have something that that evolves because in principle people will not want to change if the change is bad for them and so overall you know people are going to tend to favor good decisions and then good decisions accrue and good decisions can apply to governance itself and so progressively you get you get a system like this. So instead of ossifying the protocol itself and saying that's going to be the protocol, you ossify the meta protocol and you say like, hey, this is how um, disputes over direction of the protocol are resolved. Understood. So a lot of this comes down to changes. You said how a protocol evolves. Off-chain governance, Bitcoin, Ethereum is really scrappy. It's hard, but it has a strong community and there's checks and balances. It, it makes sense on some respects. But it's also so messy where I'm not sure people are able to understand what the changes are, how they're made, the coordination issues. I feel like they spend so much time talking about how it's done or confused that they don't actually know what's changing. With you guys, it's different because it's a very clean upgrade process. It happens on chain, but you do lose. Some people may feel it's a little bit more centralized. How do you think through those differences? So first of all, I don't don't think that having your uh, upgrade on chain... uh, basically absolve you from the problem that you've been describing because at the end of the day uh protocol upgrades are very complex uh pieces of code they require a lot of understanding of the code base uh they require a lot of time to think through and so that's uh time that uh people don't necessarily have so they're not always able to um, analyze it by themselves so that's true for if you're process is based on forks and it's true if your process is based on 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 uh, on chain governance so I, i'm not sure that i don't think that's what it does what it really does is that it prevents a like Keynesian beauty contest phenomenon where somehow you fork because you know everyone else is forking and you don't want to be left on an orphan branch and i think that's what too often can happen with uh with hard forks it's like hey we know the hard fork is happening so you know I will have to go along with it. If you don't, you know, there's no penalty for opposing a change with on-chain governance. If you say, I don't like this, you put it, there's no, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not getting slashed. You're not getting, you're not getting penalized. You're not like ending up on an orphan chain that no one uses. And so, you know, you, you have a way for people to express their opinion clearly. And, and not only do you have a way, but also, you know, it's mandatory in a sense of like, this change will not happen unless people actually voice directly whether or not they uh they approve or oppose the change so i, I think of the online uh, of the on-chain process as like a ratification mechanism you still have to have this robust off-chain governance and off-chain discussion it doesn't you know the on-chain governance is not a substitution for off-chain governance and discussion it's a ratification process yeah it's it's crazy how expensive some of those uh situations have become roger ver i mean calvin are with bitcoin like all of bitcoin's children it just seems like i mean those are just relevant examples of people that disagreed or wanted to change and yeah. most of them left and you know their value of their holdings and their new asset is just worthless or worth a lot less now yeah yeah i mean it's it's really um it's really tough to uh 
to pull off a uh, a, a, a fork. Um, there's very very few successful. For example, Monero is one because I think uh, yeah, Monero is technically uh, a fork of uh, of um, what should we call it? Was it Bitcoin? I think they forked of Bitcoin, but not from the they didn't fork the chain. They forked the uh, the code base. Uh, and Bitcoin SV versus Bitcoin Cash. Um, they have, you know, they, they, they have managed to basically like split the baby as opposed to just having one be uh, irrelevant. But these are exceptions. Uh, I think it's really, really hard to uh, to justify as the existence of a fork. And what's interesting is some people look at this and say like, well, see, hard forks are not a problem. No value is lost because one of the branch ends up like being worth uh, very, very little. And I think that misses a point. The problem is that the function that chooses between the two branch doesn't have necessarily to do with technical merits. It doesn't have necessarily to do with uh, a lot of factors. It has to do with legitimacy. It has to do with what branch people perceive as you know, the branch. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's tough to figure that out in real time though, right? Like what if one has a huge social following and the other has a huge social following? I mean, then you just get two viable branches, right? Yes, but I, I think it's very hard to have uh, two viable branches because these people, you know, these, these things are substitutes. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's a good point. Plus, the, how one big the, more, the, more, the one with the more network effect has a big advantage over the other one. So yeah. The, now the, it the, 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 the reason the two might basically like split the baby is only if there's a, a lot of uncertainty over which one might end up being successful and which one might not. No, that that's that's totally fair. And not to... It's super interesting. Just to change gears, because I want to get these questions in before you go. Yeah. One thing I like to think about is like social figureheads in the space. Like I love Ethereum. I love everything built. But, you know, one of my concerns is I'm not sure if Vitalik can ever leave. Like, how do you think through social figureheads in the space and when they're able to or if they're able, ever able to leave? Well, first of all, um, I, I I don't think it's a good idea, uh, both for the projects and for the figureheads to be figurehead. I don't I you know I don't wish on anyone being a figurehead. I think it's it it, it sounds it's it sounds exhausting. So I wouldn't uh, probably wouldn't recommend it. Um, and, and Arthur, I'm not discounting the work of all the teams who build these protocols. I mean, there's of thousands of extremely smart people. Just to get to the question, I asked pretty bluntly. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, you know, I think it's I, I think it's best to do uh, I think it's best to do without, of course. Uh, if you, you you're trying to build a uh, if you're trying to build a social movement that um, that you know that, that 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 can reach billions of people, any single person is going to be polarizing. And if if you have something that's too polarizing, I, I think early on being polarizing can be uh, useful because you're poll, you attract uh, you attract uh, it can attract people. But if you want to if you want to scale beyond that. You need to lose a little bit of flavor uh, over time. If you're like, if 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 you're too much of an exotic dish in some sense, you're not going to uh, you're not going to be palatable to a very very large audience. And having uh, and having a figurehead, I think, pre- prevents you from having a very very broad reach, because you want to be you want everyone to be able to uh, identify with a project to make it their own in some sense. And and you can't really do that if the project is attached to a uh, uh, at least at least in people's mind to a person. How do you think these massive founders? I mean, I, I'm sure you've probably thought about this yourself, but 
How do you feel about that, though, when you have a you know potentially large monetary stake? It's something you've spent years on. It's something you've built. How do you separate that in your mind from, hey, you know, I built this, but it has to evolve by the community versus, hey, I built this and it should be mine. It should be built in my, you know, my image. How do you like how do you think leaders of these massive projects think through that? Because obviously the ones that let the communities evolve, the protocols win versus a dictatorship. But it's just hard, I think, for the founders to grasp that. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, if, if they really want to control these things, they should be into a different industry, right? Like, what's the point of trying to build something that's decentralized uh, especially, or something that's self-amending? You know, if you if, if you look at uh, the Tezos papers, they're all about basically avoiding the lack of, uh, of, of any type of, uh, of central control. And so, you know, if, if, if you are, you know, if you want done, things done exactly like, your way in a very precise way and you know don't decentralize keep you know uh make your own projects or, or or do it in a different field it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to uh to uh to do to to, to go into this area of uh of, of development if that's if, that, if that's your preference yeah no you're, you're totally right there and a lot of differences in the projects um i feel like are coming from the idea of second mover advantage so a lot of new layer ones in the space they say oh you know we don't care if somebody has this or that, we could just copy it in our project and run it and attract a community. How do you feel about second mover advantage for some of these protocols? Because it sounds like a fallacy to me, but I'm wondering what you think. No, I think it's a real thing. Uh, the thing is, it's not, in some sense, it's not glamorous, you know? No one wants to say like, no one wants to go and say like, oh, you know, we're not as smart as all, all these other people innovating, but we can always copy it and it will be okay. You know, it, <laughs> it sounds very meek. <laughs> you know, it everyone does. will be like, no, I'm a category leader. Uh, but Second Mover has has worked for a lot of, for a lot of, uh, for, you know, for a lot of companies and, and First Mover has worked for a lot of companies. So, you know, uh, like Second Mover has worked great for Microsoft. It's very, it's, it's huge. Uh, it's a huge, extremely successful company and they've been Second Movers in many cases. So, it can it can work. I think what's important is 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 having a credible way of being a second mover. Because if you just say like, oh, I'll just you know I'll just do this, right? Okay, then then do it. It it, it actually takes some. Uh, it it actually takes a lot of things that need to go right for you to be able to do this. First of all, there needs to be enough people interested in actually like rebuilding this feature. Then you need to have some mechanism by which they're going to be uh, put on the chain and so on and so forth and. Tezos does have this by default. You have, you know, a mechanism of inflation funding to make sure that this type of thing can happen. So, you know, like you mentioned, there's like a well-endowed foundation that uh, uh, that exists for the uh, for the Tezos project, which like distributes grants and can and can fund these things. But you don't want to be dependent on that. And having a mechanism for inflation funding makes you not dependent on that, which I think is important. And the other thing is, uh, you want to have a mechanism for changing the protocol, which again Tezos has. So, if you're Tezos. You know, as a chain, you can make the claim that hey, you know, I'm going, I'm always going to be uh, within some bound, within, within some like finite bound of the state of the art, and that's that's a powerful statement because it's not, you know, it, 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 this is not like a like an electronic gadget where you always want to have the latest version, and then if there's a new version, you just switch to the new version. If you're trying to be again uh, a currency store of value, if you're trying to be something like this. You need to be able to have a story about um, stability. You need to have a story about like, hey, here's why this is here to stay. And it's more convincing to say this is here to stay because 
it's always going to be close to the state of the art without necessarily like taking crazy technological risk is a more compelling argument that, hey, we just built something and it happens that for you know the next six months, we're going to be the most advanced technology platform that there is. That's not very compelling. No, I, I totally understand that. I I guess the question though is like, do you think that the crypto sphere is too, you know, moving by the second and too blocking out the rest of the world? Like I'm trying to think through like if MakerDAO or Synthetics was built on Tezos or Solano or something else where maybe it had faster throughput, like that's obviously a benefit, right? But everyone in crypto says, oh, it's not, it's gotta be built here. Do you think that we're just crypto people in general are just viewing the world in too narrow of a lens when we're comparing these things? I'm I'm not sure why what the connection with a narrow lens is. Like for for you mentioned Solana and, and, and a lot of people still building. So I think we need to see a bunch of layer one projects, like well-funded layer one projects fail before we see a lot of people start getting interested into building on other protocols. You know, one of my uh one of my hope for Tezos is that you have, you know, some team comes up with like a great way of doing like better throughput, better consensus algorithm. And their first reflex today is, oh, we're going to launch a new layer one blockchain. And that's still the case because I think for them, that's what made the most business sense. I think in the next few years, we'll see that that doesn't work as a business model, launching a layer one chain. And We'll see. Uh, we'll see people get more interested in saying like, okay, but I am interested in core development. Can I, you know, like, can I, uh, can I make a business out of doing core development on some other platform? And that's where I think Tezos can shine in. But it's it's going to take a few like big layer one project to fail uh, in a business sense before we see this happen. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. Like, I, I agree with you that a lot of the layer ones will fail, but. Like from an outside perspective, it would make a lot more sense for some of the projects built on existor layer ones to switch to other ones which may have better features for their protocol, but it just probably won't happen, right? I mean, like I don't think anybody's going to go and build like a viable synthetics on Tron, even though I think they just copy and pasted it recently. But do you understand like kind of what yeah, I'm getting? Like I don't, yeah, I don't know. You know, the, the thing is that, that I heard about Tron that like opened my eyes is that if you think of it as a decentralized blockchain, it like, well, not a decentralized blockchain. If you think of it as, as that, it's, it's maddening. If you think of it as a, uh, as a big uh, media uh, Chinese M&A company, you know, you, you, the world makes more sense. <laughs> so Yeah, and uh, a successful media company. I mean, he, they crush yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. But again, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the success of, uh, of Tron comes from the ability of like spending 200 million on BitTorrent and you know, creating a token that has nothing to do with it, that just like has a name and then selling it. And you can only do that for so long because at some point uh, people stop being interested because they're like, okay, well, you know, why would I, why would get, why would I get this BitTorrent token? I can use BitTorrent without it. So really what's a, uh, what's the point? And so that's kind of like self-limiting after a while. Uh, but yeah, you know, they've been, uh, they, they've been copying a lot of stuff. And it's not like uh, I don't like I don't like the ethos of it. I don't think it's uh, I, I don't like the ideology of it. But like in terms of uh, <laughs> you know copying everything down to like they copied the IPFS logo for the uh, for the uh, for the Tron logo. But at least I, I was laughing so hard when I saw that. <laughs> at least they have a strategy. You know what I mean? It's like it's it, it's not incoherent. Like they're, 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 they are, they are executing on a, uh, on a specific strategy and I don't know if it'll pan out for them, but at least I like that they have some, uh, 
some direction. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's funny to think about them as a media company. When you think in that lens, they're just insanely successful, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you think about other protocols, like we talk about Tron for a bit. So when you think about Asia, do you think that there could be geographical winners to this game? Like, I don't know much about Asia, the culture in Asia, especially in China. I know it's very hard to work there. I know Ethereum really hasn't pierced their walls as well. How do you think through like geographical winners in the space? I think it's possible. So, you know, I I, I, I generally push in, in the direction of maximalism by saying like, look, all of these platforms compete with each other and it's winner take all. I really, really push in this direction. You know, one of my personality characteristics is that I am very um, rarely 100% over things. I'm all about gradation. And so I don't think we end up with a world with like a single token, but I, say, I, I do think you have a very strong uh, power law. And if you can think of like what can create, what, what, like what niche can exist for different projects, I think basically there are two. One is um, a throughput decentralization trade-off. So like slightly more centralized chains uh, with uh, faster throughput. And the other one is geographic. Because historically, even like even even uh, companies or projects or protocols with very very strong network effect have sometimes not been able to uh, to prevent uh, geographic pockets. So geography is still very strong. So if we, if we, if we see this, it will be if we see differences, they may be uh, they may be geographic. I would agree with that. I I really like that narrative. I mean, do you think that like even gold world... and silver had like you know, I think silver was more prevalent in Asia than, than, than gold historically. So even, you know, even historically over millennia, you still had like some, uh, some, some of this geographic difference. Internet flat, flattens the world, uh, but there are still language barriers, political barriers, and so cultural barriers. So, so it's, not a, uh, it, it, it's not obvious that, that they, will be, uh, they will be broken down by, uh, by protocols. Have you spent a lot of time in um, in Asia, Arthur? I wasn't I wasn't sure before I asked my next question. No, I don't think I have. I mean, I've, I've visited the region. I've you know I've I've, I've been to uh, uh, a few countries in Southeast Asia, but you know the, the cumulative time I've spent in Asia in my life is probably like a couple of months. Yeah, no, I was I was going to ask how much real news you think from Asia actually makes it back over to the east. I just feel like it's such a different culture that you know, especially us in the U.S., like we don't. Um, really understand like Multicoin just invested in DeForce despite Ethereum have everything on DeFi on it. The thesis being that there's totally different values over there. There's totally different culture. There's different desires, different needs, and I feel like that's lost on people in the East, especially in the U.S. Yeah, I don't know anything. Or about sorry, them. sorry, in the West. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't know anything about about DeForce, so I, I, I don't really know. I don't. I, I I'm not sure I agree with the thesis of multicoin in uh, in general um, about this uh, about this space. I think they're very very focused on throughput, and they're very very focused on applications. And I think I'm more focused on the story, the the, the mythology, um, a lot of this, the moneyness, all of these other aspects which are not pure technological plays. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, a lot of the space spends so much time on the technical differences of, say, throughput and centralization. They don't really spend a lot of time on the philosophical points you bring up that really kind of resonate with a worldview. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think, I think I think philosophy is very important because you know if, if all you're saying is like oh I'm building this like really really neat tool and uh, people are going to use this tool to do a lot of things they're going to host a lot of applications and so on and so forth then it makes sense to treat this purely as a technology problem but I don't think that's the case. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. I feel like a lot of successful VCs in the space spend a lot of time on the philosophy and less time on the technicals, because I feel like you lose the community in the technicals and you lose what the stuff is actually built for and where people actually are, because you kind of want to figure out where you think they should be. But uh, I guess I guess we'll see there. So Arthur, switching gears a little bit, yep. the future, what keeps you up at night? What scares the hell out of you? Is it an AI future? What What exactly are you afraid of with the world ahead? This might play into uh, this might yeah. play into the current COVID crisis too. But. I, I mean, it depends on what scale. The, the problem is like I used to be like this. I used to be this contrarian where people would say like I worry about this and I worry about this and I would say like no, really, what you should worry about is pandemics. And now, you know, now I can't be like uh, now I can't be interesting in uh, in cocktail conversations about it because everyone is going to be like, well, duh. So <laughs> you know, <I'd> be, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and the thing is, is like in some sense we're 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 lucky with this one because, um, you know we we don't quite know what the CFR is going to be on this uh, COVID nineteen, uh, the lowest numbers you know you, you like the lowest credible numbers are probably around like zero point five percent. The highest credible numbers are around like four percent, four five percent. So it's a wide range. If I had to guess. My, my my guess would be probably around one percent. So it's 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 very little. It's like at, it's at a point of lethality where it's uh, where it's a tragedy, and when you know the economy is stopped, and you know it's 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 a financial crisis and so on and so forth. But in some sense, you know, it's you know the the, the mortality of a virus like this is is rolling a die. You know, it's not like it was not much less likely that a virus like this emerges, which has ten percent uh, or twenty percent mortality than. 1% mortality. There is a correlation between how much a virus spreads and how much, you know, it's, it kills you. And in the sense of like, it would be hard for this virus to be a lot more lethal and at the same time, like leave you asymptomatic for so long and like going around spreading the virus. That, that's that's true. But it's still possible if you do like a, a, a plot chart of like virus, like historical viruses and how contagious they are and how much they, and how many people they kill, you will see the, the, the trade-off um, between the two. But it's not like, you know, there's still a lot of noise. So we could totally have ended up with a version of COVID-19 that was 10 times more deadly. And then you'd have a much, much bigger problem. So in some sense, I hope that this pandemic is going to inoculate the world against much deadlier pandemic. And then you get into like designer pandemic, because the, the problem is that if, if you're looking at uh, the world in terms of um, some of the uh, like real like catastrophic risk you can have, um, you have... Uh, nuclear weapons. So for most of the 20th century, there was a risk that, you know, uh, Russia and the U.S. would end up, uh, well, the Soviet Union and the U.S. would end up uh, exchanging a bunch of atomic bombs, and then you kill millions and millions of people uh, in mutually assured destruction. And it, fortunately, it didn't uh, it didn't happen. But I think one of the reasons it didn't happen is that there were only a few parties involved in making this decision, and those parties can coordinate, and they can be, you know, they, and and it can be some some checks and balances. Now imagine, and, and it's also the case that you can't build a, an atomic bomb in your garage. Um, enriching uranium is extremely uh, uh, is extremely difficult. You need to, you know, like let alone mining, but like enrichment is a is a very hard technological process. You don't just do it at home. 
um, engineering viruses is something that can be done at home. Uh, it's not. I don't think it's done today. I think there's very few people who know how to do this. But in 10, 20 years, we're going to move in a direction where people can actually engineer plagues in their garage. And here's the problem is you cannot easily police uh, billions of people who might be doing this uh, at home. And uh, I don't think also, I, I don't think, I don't think it's feasible. I, I, and I certainly wouldn't like the part of the risk is A, that someone does this or B, that governments decide to have a completely totalitarian police state in order to prevent this from possibly happening. So Solution is investing massively in the ability to respond to pandemics as opposed to uh, uh, to anything else. Like we need to have much better antivirals, uh, much faster way of producing vaccines, much better way of protecting people against pandemics. So that's one of the things that do worry me about. But again, it sounds like it sounds like I'm just being fashionable right now. But I've been worrying about pandemics for a long time. Um, other things that I worry about in general, I um, I worry about the growing role of of, uh, of of government in the interaction with technology. So historically, you know, you have different checks on government. Um, they are, I would say, constitutional checks. I don't initially, I don't just mean the U.S. I mean constitutional in the sense of like, you know, governments have bodies which have their own rules, and a lot of governments have self-limiting rules. And some, you know, uh, one of the ways that governments have self-limiting is having. Uh, uh, open elections, for example, is one 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 method in which you can limit the power of government, because if they start being too drunk on power, you can vote them out. Um, other ways of limiting government is uh, having independent an, an independent judiciary branch, which can hold the executive uh, accountable. So you have uh, you have different you have different ways of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of 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 like, limiting the power of government. But historically, one of the things that has really limited the power of government is you know the limitation of the physical world in the sense of like the government cannot just enforce uh, cannot just pass and costlessly enforce any law that it wants uh if tomorrow for example the government wanted to ban uh you know people from uh saying hello to each other uh, over the phone or in any way it would be very hard for them to do that they wouldn't be able to enforce it it would be bad law but they would also be not able to enforce it Technology is making all of these things easier. And when we get to the point where government has the means and the technology to enforce any laws that it wants, you're losing an important check on the power of governance. And there are some people, uh, like I would say, a lot of like law and order people think that somehow the existing uh, constitutional checks that you have are enough. They're saying like, oh, it's okay. You know, you don't have to worry about bad laws because, you know, uh, people are elected and you can always amend the constitution and you have all of these mechanisms which are very, very weak and extremely slow, which are going to like help prevent abuse of government power. And that's extremely scary if you think that's a sufficient check on the power of government. It's not like the, you know, them having the government having the ability to know everything and do everything is extremely um it's extremely scary. Now, they're really bad at doing things in general. And so that's an important uh, check on the power of government. But with technology, even, you know, no matter how inefficient you are and how bad you are, at some point, you still manage to get things done. And that's uh, that's extremely scary. I also think there's been a weakening of the uh, uh, of the ideology of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, against, you know, uh, against government power. I think over time, people have become more... Uh, more accepting of it, and and and, and I find that I find that worrying. So uh, Arthur, and, a lot yeah. of a lot of on that on that point, a lot of people argue the difference between small and large government. But I think what you're saying is that 
it doesn't matter if the government has, you know, X employees or X squared employees. What matters is their power and how they can use technology at scale to enforce laws and police people. Yep. Got it. Got and it. I, I don't know what the solution, the solution might be to have much, much better uh, forms of government, much, much better checks and balances. But I am not holding my breath on uh, on this one. I don't think it's going to, to happen. I think honestly, the most... I, I, a lot of governments are still beholden to public opinion uh, in a large change. And so I think that public opinion is good, um, is a good check and balance uh, that, that we have. The, the problem is that a lot of the public opinion is shaped by the media. And we have a media that is extremely, at least in the US, the media is massively pro-government. You know, whether it's left-wing or right-wing media, um, it's, it, it's basically extremely polarized towards um, government solution to problems. And that's um, that's a worry because you have a lot of media controlling the narrative and controlling the narrative towards more and more control. So the COVID crisis, though, kind of plays into your point on the government. It's hard to argue, like the government is obviously getting more power because everybody has to look for them to solve this issue. But the US really botched its early response. And in foreign countries, especially in Asia, I feel like people are going to just look to the government and solidify their view that, hey, you know, the government saved me. I'm beholden to them forever. How do you think our reaction here to the COVID virus has been going? Like, what are your thoughts on what's going to happen after? I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic because, if, and again, if you look at the media response in the, in, in the US, you'll have the left wing media that for a while told you that, oh, look at these crazy tech bros, you know, who don't know anything and who are worried about the virus. Ha ha, how, how stupid they are. By the way, break up all the tech monopolies. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. uh, and and then you have the right wing media now who's saying like, "Oh, Trump did such a great job in preventing the crisis." And like, you know, he obviously botched this. And it, what's so funny to me is that like this pandemic could have been so on brand for Trump. Like, I you know, I don't like. I'm I'm personally an open border type of guy. I don't like right wing populism or left wing populism but let's you know let, let's just say that i you know uh let's just let, let's just step into his shoes he sees this thing happening what could he do he could say like you know this is why we have to worry about china this is why i've been tough about the border this is why we need to bring manufacturing at home i'm closing the border i'm taking aggressive action this is why you need someone decisive like me who's going to do things and so on and so forth he could totally play into it you know if you're right wing populist and you have like a global pandemic that happens it's like you know, gift from heaven in terms of politics. And instead of that, like for a month, he's on TV saying like, oh, there's not that many people. Oh, what's really important is not spook the stock market. Like that is crazy bad. And despite that, despite that, there's already a narrative that, oh, he's done great. He's done great. It, it was all the uh, WHO. It was all China. And to be sure, you know, like, yes, China did, did probably like uh, lie and hide a lot of information about this for a little while. But that doesn't account for the entire months where it was obvious that this thing was spreading and was contagious and was lethal. And, you know, the FDA was not approving tests uh, coming from uh, from abroad. And in, in, in so far as the, government, as the U.S. government has had a good response, it has been uh, when it has gotten out of the way. You know, that's it's, it's, it's most of that. That's the main thing that they've done. It's like, oh, I guess we'll suspend all, you know, all these FDA rules. Like, well, I saw these rules were great. I saw that it made people healthier. You know, it's funny, but when you have an actual problem, you realize that these actually are maybe people killing people. And, and I, I, I don't know that this lesson is going to be learned, unfortunately. I don't know that this lesson is going to be learned if you, if, because people will draw the lesson from reading the press and, 
they will um and, and, and they'll draw the lesson that we need to have a third government agency that oversees all the medical stuff i i guess one way that people learn is um like when things are really bad so you know if your president the economy is very bad people might vote you out and they're not necessarily like looking at causality is just that well things are bad so people must be doing a bad job and so in some sense you know i guess people will probably if a lot of people die i think people will think less of government in general because they'll say like well you know i'm not supposed to be uh perturbed in my life by all these crazy things happening so i suppose that the people in charge are not doing a good job so i think overall we'll see a bit more of a crisis in uh i i think we'll see less faith in government overall as an outcome of this than more um but not by much. I, I I definitely agree with you, Arthur. I, I'm just trying to think through the implications. So like, let's say people in the US rally around the idea that Trump didn't handle it well. And I think he did not handle it well at all, regardless of people's political views. But what you're saying is that people won't learn. And so nothing will really change. But I, I feel like confidence is starting to strike because this is the first time I think in a while that every country has faced a global issue. That's the same issue. It's the same enemy. Yeah, yeah, and the, the, you know maybe existing political leaders may pay the price. I think it's more of like what people will favor in terms of policy going forward is what uh, is what I worry about. I do think that I, I do worry about uh, people being less open to uh, to uh, to globalization, for example. Even though it's like it's it is it, it is a complete red herring. So there is idea that oh, you know, if if our borders are open, you know, if uh, then somehow like pandemics are more of a problem. And that's that, that that's completely bollocks because you know unless you have uh, unless your border is closed a hundred percent, you're not going to prevent someone coming in and 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 spreading the virus. You know, all it takes is a couple super spreader going through. So if you're not going to go, you know, and if if you have you know either you have a border that's hundred percent closed, or you know, you might as well have open borders in terms of like preventing pandemics. But people are going to make, use this as an argument to like, instead of having like 90% border, 90% closed borders, going to 95% closed borders. And I think that's a, uh, that's a terrible waste. You're going to get like all the economic and freedom costs uh, of this and none of the public health benefits. Yeah, I, I love the way that you think in extremes, Arthur. It, it really brings it down. It's easy to understand. It's digestible. What's what do you think about their economic response though? I think like Naval tweeted out recently that you know the number of people dying that are under you know forty five or, or younger whatever is is a very small percent. Meanwhile, we're all locked down, economies are shut down, people aren't earning money, and you know this might drive people to really support something like universal basic income. Do you think that our response generally is worth the economic result? Like everyone's staying home, but will there be businesses to open up next week, next month? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I, not not all of this has to do with the lockdown because if you look at Sweden, uh, you look at their movie theater numbers. No one's going to the movie theaters. Restaurants are empty. Uh, you can also see it on Open Table, for example. If you look at the bookings on Open Table, they started going down way way before uh, the lockdown started. So a lot of people are saying like, oh, the economy is forced to be shut down, but that's not that's that's not completely true. Like a lot of people are just staying home out of. Um, out of self-preservation. I also don't think that just giving people, you know, if, if, if everyone is forced to stay home, giving people a bunch of money is not going to solve the problem because you do need to have uh, things being uh, the, things being produced. And if you have a supply shock and a demand shock at the same time, just giving money to people is not going to, uh, to solve the, uh, is not going to solve the issue. I hope we don't see a UBI out of this. You know, uh, a lot of 
UBI proponents say like, oh, wouldn't it be great to do this because we could replace all welfare with a UBI and it would be so much like neater and simpler. Um, and of course, it's not going to, what, what's going to happen. The day we see you see a UBI, it's just going to be printed money that's going to be given on top of uh, of everything else. And so that's, and, and, and I think it's a political slippery slope because the minute you have that, you'll have people wanting to, uh, to, to increase it and it's just extremely uh, it's just extremely onerous and in order to being able to collect that money the government is going to build a bigger and bigger panopticon it's going to build a bigger and bigger control of the uh, of the economy and you end up having something that's uh, that's that's fairly ruinous uh, both for uh, wealth and individual uh, liberties so I'm pretty pessimistic about that. I also don't think that. I mean, you know, right now if you you still have like food supply chain working, and so making sure that people are able to get food and giving them money, that's that's one thing. But like thinking that somehow having a UBI solves the problem is uh, is wrong. Like you do need you do need people working and producing stuff. If you're not producing things, it doesn't matter how much money you uh, you're printing. So I'm guessing you're not a fan of the government bailing out airlines, banks, etc. Like as for companies, like are you of the opinion that let free market capitalism win out, let these companies fail, let new investors buy the assets, restart the businesses. That's what bankruptcy is for, to create leaner companies yeah. to handle risk. I mean, you know, I'll repeat the truth, but a thing that needs to be understood is that if, if even if an airline goes bankrupt, it doesn't mean the planes are going to stop to fly. Like the planes are here, the airports are here, the pilots are here. Like literally just the airline going bankrupt just means that you have a change of shareholders. The shareholders used to be the people who bought shares, and now the shareholders are the creditors. That's it. Like that's a change. So it doesn't mean the end of air travel. It doesn't mean any. It doesn't mean any of this. Uh, it can, you know. So it doesn't mean also that like all of the pilots are at work or anything like that. Uh, that being said, I am less stri- I, I would say I'm less strident about the uh, uh, the airline bailout than. Uh, than others might be. I mean, in general, I, you know, I don't think there should be a government, and so I don't think they should like be bailing out people and so on and so forth. But I would say that it is less scandalous than the bailout of banks, for example, in two thousand eight, because you know you have the same time the government is forcing airlines not to fly. Uh, so if they're yeah. telling you like you're not legally allowed to do your job, you to do you to to run your business, then then you know that's like. Okay, so if I can't do my business, you need to com- you, know, you need to compensate me. It's, it's kind of like you know, if your government does any mean domain and, and takes your properties, they have to compensate you for it. If they're saying like you cannot fly your planes, now the argument is saying like yeah, but it's kind of like you know what I was saying for the movie theaters. If 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 if, if even if even if the guards in Bennett, people wouldn't be traveling, and so since all the borders are closed, as a result, the airline would still be going bankrupt, uh, and that's fair. And in that case, yeah, I, I do think that they should. Uh, you know, I, I I do think that they should not be bailed out. I'm just want to say that there are there are some sensible arguments for like why it's not just like a free uh, a free gift uh, for 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 the government to the shareholders of uh, of uh, of airlines. Yeah, I, I worry that executives. I, I worry that stock buybacks are going to be a casualty for this. Uh, <laughs> and there's absolutely nothing wrong with stock buyback. I mean, there's nothing wrong with stock buybacks compared to dividends, and obviously. You know, a business should be paying dividends. That's the uh, that's a that's a reason for the business to exist. If it's not going to, or at least for the uh, for the shares to exist. If the shares never pay dividends, the shares are worthless, right? You all shares because either they pay dividend or because they might pay dividend in the future, 
or because you know the company may be liquidated or acquired and so on and so forth. But like at some point down the line, you have to return money to shareholders. And it turns out that in the US tax code, um, if you pay shareholder a dividend, you're taxed twice. And uh, if you are doing a stock buyback, you're not taxed twice. <laughs> and so when people say like, oh, and the stock buybacks and so on and so forth, that's, um, that might happen because people are looking for a scapegoat and that might be the scapegoat. And what it will mean is that, oh, well, it will be more expensive to, uh, to pay dividends now to, uh, to shareholders. It's just, it's just basically a tax hike. And it will be presented in a moral framework by saying like, oh, look, they were imprudent and so on and so forth. But no, all you've done is just a tax hike. I really recommend the Clifford Asness uh, book on uh, the de- sorry paper on the derangement against stock backbacks. Yeah, it's uh, it's bringing me back to business school when we had to do an argument on Walmart versus Amazon, and my professor was a little older and would not buy the argument to buy Amazon because there was no income, no dividends. And I mean, if you look at the chart on Amazon versus uh, it was Amazon versus Walmart, if you look at the chart, obviously you get wrecked by not buying Amazon. But I mean, that's just a difference in. Like the professor was right, but on the flip side, they were wrong because they didn't make as much money. Like you know what I mean? I, I I don't get that feeling. You know that 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 thing is the exact re- it, this type of mentality is the exact reason why some people didn't see the uh, the pandemic coming. It's it, it's kind of like this very very static mindset. It's saying like, oh well, um, look, there's no cases in the U.S., so there's no reason to worry. There's zero, you know, there's five cases. Five cases is not a crisis. And like, no, but look, it's growing. Look, you have this exponential growth. You have like both a mechanistic model and like an, and like some empirical data showing that there's a good chance that this might going to grow. It's like, well, I'll believe it when I see it. And so if you look at something like Amazon and say like, well, it doesn't pay dividends, so it doesn't have value. Well, it doesn't matter. Like, will it in the future? Like, can it? That's what you should be, uh, that's, that's, that's what you should be looking at. Um, no, I... I'm with you there. I totally agree in looking at the future, discounting it. They have the ability or the capacity to. That's what's important. I had a few uh, like single stock investment, and one of the one I uh, uh, I did the best with was a uh, this New Zealand company called uh, Xero. They they do accounting software, uh, and I remember at, at you know they, they went they went public super early, and uh, I remember reading at the time, uh, you know in uh, in uh, in New Zealand stock trading forums, and people were like, oh, you know, well this company is losing money, so you know why would you uh, why would you ever like. <laughs> In, why would you ever like invest in it? And you're looking at their numbers, and like their 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 user base is growing like crazy. Their users love them, love the product, and so on and so forth. They're expanding in other countries. And you're like, well, sure, you can wait until they you know turn a profit, but if you do that, <laughs> you know it's it's going to be too late. So that's that was that was very very that's a very very strange mindset. Oh, I'm totally with you. Yeah, you have to be able to identify these opportunities while there's misconceptions or while there's these disconnects. It's if not, you're just you're just the dumb buyer at the end of the day. You're buying when the person who opportunistically bought is selling at the end of the day. Yeah, but but you know, you, you, but you, so just back to the point, it's like you do, you do need to have some 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 some, some dividend at some point. Yeah, no, no, I I understand that. And Arthur, just closing out some some quick questions. Just I want your opinion on the. COVID virus, and I don't mean this to be sensationalist, I'm actually asking if, if you believe so, do you think that this was something that could have been or possibly manufactured um, by some entity, good or bad? So my, my initial, uh, I, I'll stick to my initial take because it, it, it seems to be vindicated now. Uh, my initial take was like, no, uh, so it's unlikely. And, and, and again, you know, 
this is going to be stated, but this is with very low confidence because I am really not an expert in this. But I remember reading experts saying like, this does not look manufactured. And I also remember this being like still very, very close to a virus lab. And so, the, you know, I would say the story that most makes sense to me is that it did, you know, I, I think it's still more likely that it just like happened to originate here. But there's also a story that maybe in this lab, they're testing like existing viruses on some animals and maybe there's like a confinement uh, uh, error and then, you know, the thing uh, gets out of the lab. So I would say like if it did come from the, it, it, it it, it it would be a big coincidence if it just happened to be next to a a, a big like virus lab, but I, I I doubt that somehow like this is something the engineer. I think it's more likely that they study a bunch of viruses and maybe one of them escapes. So that's a, that's a possibility. Got it. Got it. That makes that makes sense. I mean, sense. if it's a bioweapon, it sucks as a bioweapon. Like that's a, that's a thing. Like you don't want you know if you if you're building a bioweapon, you don't want something that's going to like you know kill. Uh, and in, you know, kill only old people. Like you know, you want something that's, you want a good bioweapon. You want to give something that's going to give like diarrhea for a month to uh, uh, soldiers between the age of uh, eighteen and forty. Uh, that's like more effective as a bioweapon than something that's going to kill uh, people around the world in nursing homes. Yeah, it also feels like if it was a bioweapon, wouldn't the person making it want a cure for their people? Yes, you also probably want to uh, <laughs> develop it, but I think it's possible. I mean, you know, I, certainly they're, they're, they're probably studying studying coronaviruses in this in this institute. So, so who knows? But they're also studying them because they're endemic to the area as well. You know, they're in you know they're in China, they're around. So, yeah, that, that's fair. And Arthur, I think we've gone back and forth on Twitter with our love of sci-fi and movies. If, if I'm not incorrect here, and I think it was like Black Mirror and Love Drugs and Robots and, and a few others. How do you feel about AI? And I know there's probably a lot to unpack here, but is it something that directionally you're afraid of, or is it something that you think will benefit the world? So I do buy I I, I do buy the idea that um, there's uh, AI risk in a sense that you can have a scenario where you have uh, an AI that uh, becomes more and more powerful very quickly, and if it's not properly aligned, uh, aligned with human goals, then um, you end up uh, basically. Uh, losing uh, the entire humanity. So I do think that's a possibility. Am I afraid of it? Uh, it seems... The, the, the thing is, like, afraid is like a very emotional response, and I know this intellectually, but I don't, like, um, I don't think it translates emotionally uh, that well into me. I also think there's very little I can do about it. I know there's, like, initiatives to work around it, but it, it does seem like... It, for me, it does seem like a, a, a almost... Uh, intractable problem and so in some sense it's kind of like hey um this is very bad but i'm not sure uh i'm not sure a lot can be done about it yeah i mean it's it's weird to think about because it really does feel like if that were to happen we still win because it's the next form of evolution right not necessarily because you know if if you have like an interesting ai which has complex goals and which turns the universe into like its own creation does something beautiful and so on and so forth so you know that then maybe that's great you know like we've moved on to some to something else that's fine but when you're doing this you're already ascribing human values to this uh, to this ai and uh, you know to, to use a famous example maybe it end up just mapping the universe with paper clips and and does something extremely boring uh with it i love that paperclip ai game online i wish i could remember the name of it but uh so you're of the opinion that we will get to a point where we have general AI, 
or AI that can, you know, yeah, understand how much risk. I don't think there's anything magical about meat. So, you know, you have brains made of meat, uh, and I don't think there's any reason why you cannot make brains out of silicon. And when you do, you can make them much faster than, uh, than what they are. There's a, uh, I would say this is an upper bound on, uh, on the time it takes to get general AI, which is whole brain emulation. Like by the time you can completely simulate a, uh, a brain in silico, then at that point you have, you have general AI. And you can, you know, this, this, this timeline is easier to predict because it, it mostly requires advances in, uh, in manufacturing and the production of, uh, uh, of, um, of chips. And it's, it, it's a little more predictable than what's like advances we might have in, uh, in theoretical AI, but it does put a bound. And I think that even being like, con- like being conservative, it, it's going to put like a 40, 50 year bound at most on, uh, on this. That's fair. And last question for you, Arthur. Do you think that in our lifetime we'll visit the planets? You know, do you think Elon Musk is going to achieve his goal of us actually leaving Earth in a real sense where we actually colonize other planets? Or do you think that suddenly? Yeah, I don't think there's a point in uh in colonizing other planets. So I really don't I really don't see it. So there is some point in colonizing space. I think having some uh L five colonies in space might make sense. But I don't know why you would want to go like near a big gravity well, like Mars, for example. You know, what are you going to, like, you get some construction material, but you're better off, I think, like stripping it, or, like getting some asteroids and moving them in t- near L5 and building near L5 than you are trying to, uh, to go on Mars. I do think we'll explore space, but I think it'll be robots. Do, do you think that because Mars is too close to the Earth, it just doesn't matter? Is that, is that what you're getting at? No, it's is just the- that... There's a lot of there's a lot of places on Earth which are not even settled by humans, so you know I think we'll settle the Antarctica before we settle Mars. I, I, like <laughs> yeah, that's the, fair. The main the main value of like going to Mars is basically like it's inspiring, it's beautiful, it gets people dreaming, and and you can think of all these things. But like from a practical point of view, there's really no point in going to Mars. Uh, and the argument that somehow it's like oh you know we're safer if we're if we're multi uh, planetary species. Again, I don't buy at all because the main risk that uh, that we see as a, a as a species might be um, like rogue AI, for example, and being on a different planet is not going to stop that at all. So if you know if if like Elon Musk, you think that somehow, oh yeah, this is a big uh, there's a big AI risk, then being on Mars is not going to protect you. Yeah, the AI rogue AI robot could just shoot a nuclear missile from the from Earth to Mars at the end of the day if they don't like us. Yeah, there's a lot of things they could do. Arthur, this has been incredible. It's it's great to have on somebody who I, I look up to. I really appreciate your philosophical views on the space. I love how you think in extremes. And I love how you could just give such understandable metaphors about things that people could understand. So really appreciate uh, your time coming on tonight. All right. Thank you very much. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.